In times of upheaval and crisis, I think people look for another way. And that's part of what I think is going on right now in the art world. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, as the case for Donald Trump's impeachment stands before the Senate, the president and his allies continue to blast the proceedings as a quote-unquote witch hunt. What's funny about this rhetorical defense, however, is that while there may have been a time when that term implied a search for something that doesn't exist— Nowadays, you don't have to hunt very hard to find a witch. As a matter of fact, with over one million Americans identifying as Wiccans or neo-pagans, Wicca has been called the fastest growing religion in America. Witchcraft and other strands of the occult have permeated even the most mainstream pop culture lately. In the latest film in the Bad Boys franchise, one of the heroes ribs the other one for once dating a witch. The Witches of TikTok, a thread on the fast-growing post-millennial social network, now has over 84 million views. Even Disney is hopping on the broom wagon. Its latest children's cartoon is about a teenage girl who lives with a witch and decides to go to hell to learn how to be a witch herself. That's Disney. All of this is adding up to spookily good business. A recent report said that Americans spend $2.2 billion a year on quote-unquote mystical services from tarot readings to online horoscopes, which have seen traffic skyrocket as a result. So where does all this esoterica intersect with the art world? For a while now, artists whose work touches on the uncanny have been having a moment. In a fascinating recent essay for Artnet News, the author Eleanor Hartney took a close look at the phenomenon underway and found that while it may seem supernatural, it's not so mysterious at all. Today, I'm pleased to have the eminent critic in the studio with me to discuss what's going on and maybe even help us sort out which which is which when it comes to art today. Thank you for astrally projecting yourself on the art angle, Eleanor. I'm delighted to have picked up my broom and come here. How exactly would you define the trend that we're talking about here? Well, the word that gets used is spirituality. I'm not sure that's entirely the right word because it has so many different meanings. But I think what we're talking about is the notion that there's something beyond the material world. And of course, art has always been about that kind of aspiration. So it's not surprising in a way that art is now finding its way back there. It was actually, I think, a bit of an anomaly that art seemed to be separated from the spiritual. This was something, particularly in mid-century America, there was this idea that religion was something that artists had transcended, that they had moved beyond it, that art was really about, as Frank Stella said, what you see is what you see. But I think that artists never really believed that, and now that's becoming clear. There was a time, of course, when the vast majority of cutting-edge art was religious in nature. Think of Greek statuary, of Renaissance altarpieces. In fact, the Catholic Church used to be the biggest art patron in the world. But that's not the kind of art we're talking about here, is it? Well, no, although I've done a lot of research about art and religion, art and spirituality, and one of the things that I find is that you scratch an artist and you very often find some kind of very intense religious background. They may not be practicing anymore, may not be something that they even want known. But in fact, I think that religion is a very strong and powerful 
influence on artists and it's an inspiration for them. So in some ways, this kind of explosion of spiritual oriented art that we're seeing right now, you know, is, is really just something that's been going on for a long time, but hasn't really been acknowledged in part because the art world looked down on it. Is there a difference between spiritualism and religion? Uh, yes, there is. Now, spiritualism, strictly speaking, is the occult practice of attempting to speak to the dead, of attempting to speak to a world beyond ours. And so, of course, the recent Hilma of Clint show, which broke all records for the mm-hmm. Guggenheim, Part of what I think was so fascinating to people was that one of the progenitors of abstraction, one of the earliest abstract painters, was in fact, she said, talking to spirit guides, that the work was being dictated to her in a certain way by these spirits beyond the grave. Spirituality is, I think, a broader term, but also does talk about this notion that that we live not just in a material world. And I think one of the reasons that artists now are jumping on this bandwagon or appearing suddenly to be manifesting these kinds of ideas is because it's sort of clear right now that materialism is not working. It's not satisfying. And artists, I think, are always very sensitive to these kinds of currents. Is there something about this time in particular that makes it ripe for a rebirth of spirituality in the occult? Yeah. You mentioned in your introduction this sense of Trump-era doom. And in fact, this is something I've, I've just written a book about, Doomsday Dreams, about the apocalyptic imagination in contemporary art, which I think ties into this as well. And I think that right now there's a kind of sense of crisis. And in times of upheaval and crisis, I think people look for another way. And that's part of what I think is going on right now in the art world. So you mentioned Hilma Afklint and her communion with spirits beyond the grave. She herself has an interesting story where her art did not emerge in the public consciousness until she was in her grave because she deliberately said that her art should not be debuted for 20 years after she died because she thought her time wouldn't be ready to receive it. Right. What kind of work was she doing that was so radical and so shocking. She is often kind of attributed to be the first abstract painter. We long thought that that was Kandinsky, but in fact, she predated him with her abstract work. It was geometric work. It, it uses lots of geometric figures. It doesn't tell a kind of obvious story, but it almost feels like a kind of hidden language. And in fact, in many ways, it was a hidden language. And she felt that that was a language that the art world, certainly, and even the larger world wasn't ready for yet. In Hmm. fact, it didn't really get to be known until 40 years after her death when there was an exhibition in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles Museum of Art called The Spiritual in Art. And this was a really groundbreaking exhibition because it was the first time anyone had really looked seriously at people like Hilma of Klimt. And in fact, there were others as well around the same time who were very involved in these kind of spiritualist concerns, but they had been seen as just marginal, fringe characters, wackos, whatever. And when this show appeared, in fact, it still wasn't taken seriously. And so it's a very interesting question. Why at this moment is she somehow speaking to people? Hmm. Do you think that it may also have something to do with the fact that she's a woman? Because there has been this 
widespread resurgence in attention given to women artists who have been overlooked in art history. Do you think that she's benefiting from both of these trends simultaneously as being a great overlooked female artist and also being this kind of mistress of the uncanny? Oh, yeah, I think so. Right now, one of the things that's happening is that we're reconsidering what we had always thought we knew about the narrative of art. Hmm. And that means who are the masters, who are the great artists, what were the important movements, etc. I mean, the Museum of Modern Art has just rehung their collection trying to respond to that. So part of what is happening here, yes, is this kind of rediscovery of forgotten people and particularly forgotten women. If you look, a lot of the artists who were involved in spiritualism, this movement to kind of speak to the dead, they were women. And women were the mediums. It was women who were really kind of spearheading a lot of the seances. Now, men were interested in it, Hmm. but it was a very female-oriented thing. And a lot of the artists besides Hilma, who've been kind of rediscovered, also are women. There's going to be a show at the Whitney coming up in March of Agnes Pelton, who was another artist who was also interested in the occult. And now I think that this is going to be her opportunity and her moment, and we'll see if it has the same sort of resonance. But again, she went and lived out West. She was part of a spiritual transcendental community, and she was a feminist. I think that these kind of unusual communities often offered more room and place for women. There's a feminist aspect to this whole thing. Do you think that that means that this rise in mystical art can be seen through the lens of identity as well as through the lens of a spiritualist leaning? See, this is an interesting question, the question of identity, because typically we think about artists as expressing whatever their internal kind of aspect is. Hmm. But one of the things about spiritualism is that they're actually expressing someone else. They're expressing these spirits that are coming through them. So weirdly, it's kind of an anti-individual manifestation in a way. And that's also why it was hard for people to accept Hilma of Klimt as a serious artist, because she herself said that it was through these voices that she was learning and making these works. That kind of ran counter to everything that certainly in the modern era we thought an artist should be. So I have to ask, what role does Massimiliano Gioni's 2013 Venice Biennale play in this? Because that already legendary biennial called the Encyclopedic Palace included Hilma Afklint, included mm-hmm. work by the spiritual healer Emma Kuntz. It had work by Alastair Crowley. And that seemed to strike a nerve with a lot of art critics who came out of there thinking that this was something entirely new, that this was a completely different way of looking at art than the kind of you know, a high academic October magazine style of art criticism that had been so dominant for a long time in art history. What was the impact of that show in particular? And what do you think it did in terms of pushing some of these artists out into the the public view? Yeah, that show I think was very important. It was a mingling of kind of art and what we think of as Mm non-art, which is an ever more powerful trend in the art world now. We see lots of exhibitions, and Massimiliano has certainly been spearheading exhibitions like that, where you have to understand art within this other kind of context. So part of what was interesting about the show was that, that he brought in all of these, this other kind of what would seem to be extraneous material. But I think also that it was about the occult, about mysticism, and it was about this 
forgotten part of culture. And what he did was to show how pervasive it was and, you know, how many different kind of forms that it took. And that, I think, was very eye-opening for people. And I think being the context, you know, of the Venice Biennale, it sort of made it respectable because people have been interested in this, I think, for a long time, but it hasn't really been respectable to talk about it. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been respectable to do research on it. Artists whose work is inspired by it for a long time didn't really want that to be sort of the first thing that people knew about them. So one of the things that that show did, I think, was to help unleash all of this by showing that if it can be in the Venice Biennale, then I guess it must have some kind of validity. The reason that it took flight, I think, also had to do with the moment. Because, as I say, there was this much earlier show in L.A. that didn't. So it was something about this maybe kind of new millennium. There was a lot of unrest and worry. There was Y2K. You know, there was all this concern about the end of the world. Um, Actually, just the year before, there was the Mayan apocalypse that Mm -hmm. didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So we're in one of these periodic moments that seems to come up where there is this sort of sense that terrible things could be happening, that there are forces larger than ourselves that are moving things along. And so I think that one of the reasons that that show took flight was because it picked up on some stuff that was already in the air, and then it helped to push it forward. So have you encountered personally any artists who are working in this milieu? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few artists who are working this way. Tony Ausler did a show that was at the Modern a few years ago, and it was filled with his collection. It turns out he has this incredible collection of kind of occult material. I mean, an amazing archive. He himself is not necessarily a follower or a believer in it, but is obviously completely wrapped up in it, in part because his grandfather, as it turns out, was a um, debunker of the occult, a debunker of spiritualism, and that sort of set him on this path. You see in his work also, his video work, I think that it certainly has had an influence on these kind of weird, ghostly kind of video installations that he does. Marina Abramovich, actually, it's interestingly enough, did a documentary and she went to Brazil and she pursued a lot of different consciousness changing occult practices throughout Brazil. And in the film, she's more of an observer But it's also, I think, ties in with her interest in performance. And a lot of her work is about that kind of border between control and loss of control. So she was very interested in, for example, ayahuasca, magic mushrooms, you know, all of these different kinds of practices that open a door to another reality. Marina is a very interesting artist because not only does she live in a home in the shape of a five-pointed star in Chatham, New York, which I always found really fascinating. But she was also the subject of this incredibly important show in 2010, The Artist is Present, where there were thousands of viewers who came in pilgrimages and droves to come and sit before her and gaze into her eyes in this kind of mystical rite of sorts. There used to be pilgrimages of this kind to find religious icons and artworks in churches throughout Europe and Latin America. Do we see anything like that happening with contemporary artworks or with artworks that are in museums today? Well, I mean, I think you could say that the huge crowds that went to see the Hilma Af Klimt show, it was a kind of a pilgrimage 
for some people, the whole idea of art as a kind of religion or art as a temple, you know, yes, there's there's something to that. But I, I think in a way, these explorations, they're more singular, they're more individual now, because in the days of the pilgrimages back in the Middle Ages, of course, it was a whole culture that came together and you were supported by a whole culture that also believed the same things you do. These hmm. are, are more kind of particular and individual things. I think that these kinds of explorations maybe take place often in a more private way. And certainly for the artists who are exploring these kinds of issues, it's often a sort of private experience that they're looking for. So we've been talking about the particular tenor of our time, where there's a lot of uncertainty, there has been a lot of disappointment in the rational world to solve problems that are overwhelmingly distressing, like climate change. Were there any other times in history where these kinds of spiritual rebirths happened that had a similar kind of tenor? Sure. One of the times that I think relates a lot to our time is the late 19th century. This was a time, you know, the world was changing dramatically as it is now. Science seemed to be, and, and technology were really making a whole new world and seemed to be leaving a lot of people behind. Industrialization was pushing people into cities, the whole old rural ways of life were over. And it was a very uncertain time. And that's also a time when you find a lot of interest in spiritualism, a lot of interest in the occult. And I would say that to me, there's a kind of analogy between that and our own moment. One of the things that I, I think is very interesting in the 19th century was the way that science and religion seemed to kind of come together for many mm -hmm. people. They, they, there wasn't the kind of separation that we think we have now. But I see the same kind of thing happening now in terms of artificial intelligence. I'm kind of very interested in how a hmm. lot of these same sorts of blurring of boundaries seems to be happening in discussions around that. In fact, it's kind of interesting that one, one of the big issues in the world of artificial intelligence is this notion of that at some point our brains will be uploaded into some sort of Thing up there and, and our bodies will become irrelevant and it will all be part of this thing called the singularity. Now, interestingly, that is the same word that was used by Madame Blavatsky, who was one of the theosophists, who was really one of the primary influences huh. on many of the spiritualist artists. So there's an interesting kind of parallel that's going on right now. And I think, you know, we're not sure about, again, the relationship between the world of matter and, and now we would say the virtual world the world of cyberspace. What is that? Is that a spiritual dimension or not? A lot of people who talk about it talk about it in a way that seems to echo the way that we talk about sort of religious truths. So it's a very curious thing. We saw this nearly a century ago also when people who believed in the astral plane were very happy when Einstein's discovery of the fourth dimension proved them right. So have you had any uncanny encounters of your own that have made you particularly open to this kind of art? No, I have to say, not that I personally have had any kind of encounter with the spirits of the dead or anything, but I'm very interested in religion and the way that it impacts on art. And it's something I've done a lot of writing about. I guess it's because I come from a Catholic background. I think that has had a big influence on sort of my vision of the world. I was attracted to artists who have this 
other sense, this sort of dual sense, I guess, of, of a material and a spiritual world. So it's not necessarily so much that I have personally been there and come back to tell the tale, but I see that it's something that's very powerful out there. And I guess I am attracted to the idea of there being multiple levels of reality. And it seems to me that art's one of the ways that you can really explore that. As you said before, you have this new book out called Doomsday Dreams, The Apocalyptic Imagination in Contemporary Art. It is, in other words, about how artists tackle the concept of the end of the world. What drew you to write about this? Well, that, I think, had a lot to do with previous work that I had done looking at Catholicism and its influence on artists. And then I began to realize that equally powerful were these ideas that basically come out of of religious texts like the book of Revelation, the notion of history as this thing that it has a beginning and then it goes towards some apparently horrible ending and then after which, you know, there will be perhaps redemption, perhaps not. I began to see that that's something that's very powerful in our culture and we don't even always necessarily attribute it back to its religious origins, but it sort of becomes just a shorthand way of understanding the world. So you you talk about, you know, our political, geopolitical situation and you talk about the clash of civilizations. And in fact, many of the people on both sides, many of the leaders on both sides of these conflicts in the Middle East tend to talk about them in these kind of apocalyptic ways Mm -hmm. and even in these sort of religious ways, that God of right is on our side, and that there is going to be this sort of ending in which the good will triumph and the evil will be punished. So we, we see it there. We see it in the way that we think about the environment. So many movies have given us this scenario as well. It's sort of almost second nature to think about it that way, and yet it comes out of these religious texts. So I was interested in it because it it feels like we're in a kind of very apocalyptic moment now. The divisions that are in this country right now that seem to be unreconcilable and also seem to fit in with this idea of a clash between good and evil, each side feeling that the other side is evil. So it's something that is, I, I think, very pervasive right now. And so it was interesting to look at artists who were dealing with it in various kinds of ways. So artists have been making work about end times forever. It's the centerpiece of the Sistine Chapel, for instance. Is there something different or more urgent about the way that they're approaching it now? Well, for a lot of artists, there isn't the sense that after this horrible thing happens, then paradise will come. At least the good, the just will be rewarded. And we're in a kind of dark time now where it feels like I guess you could say a secular apocalypse, because the the religious apocalypse, bad as it is, it does offer some hope at the end. But we seem to be in a moment where it's hard to come up with hope. That's one of the reasons I think it's interesting to go back and look at the roots of these feelings, because if we realize that this actually comes out of this narrative that was written three millennia ago, maybe it doesn't necessarily seem so inevitable. Because I think that We're in a moment where a lot of times we feel sort of helpless. But if we realize that, you know, in a way we've been conditioned to think this way for centuries, for millennia, perhaps it gives us a little hope that we could think in a different way and perhaps think our way, feel our way out of some of these dilemmas. So now that you've written about Armageddon, what is the next book you're going to tackle? Uh, The Art of Human Sacrifice? (laughs) 
No, I mean, I have a couple of ideas. One thing that I'm working on right now, actually, is the ecological aspect of this. And actually, it, it comes in a way out of this book, because as I was saying, the way that we have thought about ecological problems often is very tinged by our sense of the apocalypse, all these Hollywood movies that show us a dead earth. Hmm. And so one of the things I have been thinking about is how do we think differently? Are there other kinds of traditions that we can uh, draw on that, that perhaps are not so debilitating to us. I'm thinking about kind of ecological art and the way that artists have been drawing on non-Western, non-Christian, you know, non-apocalyptic traditions, thinking about time in a more cyclical way, thinking about not so much, you know, destruction, but how do you repair things. There's a tradition in Judaism called Tikam Olam, which is repairing the earth. So my next thing I, th I think will be more, perhaps more positive. Well, it seems clear that there's more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy, as the, the old expression goes. Thank you very much for joining me on The Art Angle this week, Eleanor. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>